0: Our world is built with stories.
1: Sometimes these stories cause suffering by pulling us apart from ourselves and each other.
0: The Liturgist Podcast helps people love more and suffer less by pulling apart the stories that pull us apart.
1: Today's story, those people are the problem. I am so excited for this one. Pete Rollins is in the house and uh, this, I feel like this is one of those stories that is so fundamental. We talk about, we in this season, we're pulling apart the stories that pull us apart. And this story of our problems being centralized in somebody out there, some big other is so foundational and fundamental to stories that pull us apart from each other uh i've been super excited about talking about this with you pete thank you there's no uh, so warm-up you just jumped straight into the just way this is
0: exciting I, mean, I feel like i'm strapped in we've gone from naught to 60 <laughs> i literally sat down and you <laughs> went into radio voice mode. you just said that sexy voice just started <laughs> to come out sexy yeah nice you, know, you don't sound
1: like that in real life <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's you that's, that's
1: the, the real voice, voice. <laughs> Well, welcome. So glad to have you back on the, oh, on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be back.
0: Yeah, thanks, man.
1: So let's talk about this story. Um, where does this come from? Why are we all so engulfed in this... Uh, well, I don't, I don't even know where to start. It's yeah. so prevalent. It's so like the water that we swim in as, as a culture. Well, I loved what you said at the beginning there.
0: You said that how it's, it's difficult for us to uh, face things. We often look for the problems out there, somewhere yeah. out in the world, uh, even in terms of uh, if I can't sleep, uh the problem is potentially something I can take a pill for. Mm. Uh the problem is something I can I can do some sort of meditation and get rid of it. Uh sometimes I'll do anything bar ask the question, is there something in my dreams that I don't want to encounter? Mm. And uh we're so fearful of 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 questions like that. We're always looking for some external thing we can mm. blame, whether it's our biology or whether it's our boss. Um uh, it's just a very common thing for us to do. Uh, in fact, even um, a symptom is kind of like an example of this. Uh, often symptoms in our bodies are the speaking of a truth that we cannot speak. Uh, so what happens is when we cannot speak a truth, the truth finds a way, it erupts. It always finds a way to, to get out. Um, if you are, for example, unable to express, you know, you, maybe you've got a sick mother And you're looking after her and you love her, but you also hate her. At some level, you're having to give so much to this person and it's really dragging you down. But maybe you've never expressed that, not even to anybody else. You haven't even expressed it to yourself. Mm. And so you find you're tense all the time and you find that you've got these piercing headaches. And at first you're thinking, oh, if only I can find the right medication to get rid of the headache, then everything will be great. But sometimes the headache is the eruption of the truth that you cannot speak. It's the objective manifestation of your frustration mm. and your anger that's within you. And we want to externalize it. We want to cut it out of our body like a cancer mm. rather than listen to it. Uh, and so, yeah, just whenever you said that, I go like, oh yeah, it's a very difficult thing for us to do is to um, is to face the possibility that many of the symptoms we have and the frustrations we have can connect with something deep within us.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, this, we're kind of talking about scapegoating really here, aren't we? Like, this happens on an individual and sort of daily level all the time, like the ways you're talking about, but it also happens with groups of us and with our social identities and with our feelings about, my problems being because of something, uh, not, not just external circumstances, but people, like, yes. but these are, it's yes. those people are the problem. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I, I mean, go mechanism a little bit. And absolutely.
0: That, yeah. yeah. Cause this, this actually just brings us neatly to that is that the scapegoat, uh, traditionally was, uh, the goat that carried the sins or the lack of the community. Um, and the idea was that, uh, the scapegoat is someone we blame externally for all of the internal conflicts within mm-hmm. our society. So we have to find someone who is the problem. And if only we got rid of them, then everything would be fine. When we get rid of the scapegoat, and it can be anybody, it can be anything, but the scapegoat is a type of external uh Person or thing that we believe is the problem, and that we think that if only we got rid of it, everything would be great. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the most obvious and simple example is uh, obviously in kind of fascism, where there is a tension and there are issues within the community, and then that is put onto the Jewish community, mm-hmm. and the figure of the Jew. And they say, if only we got rid of the Jewish community, then we would find uh, an organic wholeness, a oneness again. So within fascism, there's all of this talk of organic oneness, of Mm. wholeness that is being disturbed by an external enemy. And if only we get rid of the external enemy, we can return to this organic, almost like an Eden-like reality. Mm -hmm. But the truth is the community requires the figure of the Jew because it's it's actually that figure that holds them together. Mm-hmm. It's you think it's the problem, but it's actually the solution to a problem. It's what holds that community together. Just like having an enemy can kind of like hold a group of people together. They all share the same enemy, and because of that, they're able to briefly kind of like uh, avoid looking at the conflicts that are within the group itself.
1: Mm. So this is a problem then only for. The racists and the fascists. Oh, yes. And it's the, o- only for those others. <laughs> those, those people have a problem with it. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yes. If only we got rid of them, then everything would be fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: How does this, how does this, uh, we were talking a little bit about this at lunch and laughing about that, like, it seems like we're most dangerous when we're unaware of this mechanism in me. Yes, in ourselves, absolutely. Because it's so easy to be to then to graduate from. Oh yeah, look at it. it's those people. It's the Nazis. It's the racists. It's the it's the Republicans. It's the whoever it is. Whoever it is that is the the problem. And now we've just like become unconscious of of the same mechanism and yeah. just replace the new other. Yeah, there's just new purity cultures of who's in and who's out, who's toxic
0: and who's not toxic, who's right and who's wrong. And uh, we create these new purity cultures. um, uh, (laughs)
1: That's that's, going to resonate with our audience because a lot of people have come from purity culture, quote-unquote purity culture, where your sexuality is tied to your purity. And and a lot of us have a lot of baggage and and harm from that. Mm -hmm. But how did... What do you mean by new purity culture? Yeah, just new purity culture in the terms
0: of there's there's a new kind of rules as to who's clean and who's unclean. What what's a clean action and unclean action? What's a clean way of speaking and a dirty way of speaking? So it's basically a new Leviticus, you know, a new set of rules that dictate uh, cleanliness. Mm. Um, and uh, interestingly, like a figure like Jesus is someone who is questioning who is clean and who is dirty there is this, in fact the the definition of the the christ collective is the 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 trash of the world literally the dirt <laughs> but um uh, a new purity culture is basically where again, we, we basically create a whole new set of rules about what is, what is correct speech or correct action or correct thought and what is incorrect. And how do we protect ourselves from the dirty, from the other, from the toxicity of that other who threatens the, our purity. Actually, the philosopher Hegel called this the beautiful soul. And uh, it sounds lovely when you say it, the beautiful soul. But he talked about basically a stage in development Uh, you see it in children where we can't tolerate our own impurities uh, our own uh, conflicts and antagonisms and contradictions Mm -hmm. and so we put them on something else so whenever the child says there's a monster under my bed uh, the monster of course isn't under the bed the monster is inside them Mm -hmm. but they are engaging in the beautiful soul they are taking that part of themselves and they are externalizing it in some fictional object the monster that's under the bed. Mm. And of course part of growing up and becoming mature is realizing that the monster that's under the bed is actually something that's within you.
1: Yeah. So what is what are the dangers of this of this story of externalizing these monsters? On the on the first level where it's like yeah the Jews are the problem for the Nazis that that's pretty obvious for most of us like why that's yeah. a problem? But then what about when it's separated from that sort of power? Because you, you've got, you know, these powerful systems that, let's say in America, have scapegoated black people as being part of the problem with society and have made our criminal justice system and stuff, it has all these broken, biased ways of allowing racism to systematically and po- with power affect people. So there could be an argument about like that type of the kind of scapegoating that actually has power yeah. in society is that's kind of like level one. We see the, the really harmful yeah. effects of that. But what's as that kind of up levels into nuances as, as it becomes, Oh, now I I'm scapegoating or the the people that are the problem are those people, the, the the people in power, or then maybe i get even more sophisticated and go, see, well, look at these people that are still scapegoating the people in power. And now I'm up even another level.
0: (laughs) Yes. You know, like,
1: but as it becomes more abstract, what's the danger? Like if if there's no power and just a philosopher sitting around up four levels (laughs) of scapegoating levels, What's the problem? Is is there a problem when it's just theoretical like
0: that? Yeah, you know the main problem I would I would describe it as the the inability to have novelty, right? So, and it sounds so uh, small in comparison. So I'm not saying about ethics, right or wrong or anything like that. I what's what's one of the biggest problems with scapegoating and what could be called splitting. In society, where splitting is where you turn the world into a type of uh, like John Wayne movie, The Goodies and the Baddies, right? Mm-hmm. We create a world with very, very clear uh, heroes and very clear villains. Um, one of the problems with that is novelty cannot arise. And when novelty can't arise, uh, movement can't occur. So to take Northern Ireland as an example, I'm from Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. We had a 30-year war. And uh, it was primarily about, it was a political conflict and also a religious conflict. Uh, so, it was, you know, uh, broadly speaking, um, uh, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. So the conflict was partly about Northern Ireland either remaining part of the United Kingdom or becoming part of the rest of Ireland. And it was also divided partially on Catholic and Protestant lines. I love this because people think of like religious conflicts between kind of uh, Islam and Christianity or Judaism. This <laughs> yeah. is a conflict between two yeah. different, you know, Christian yeah, se- yeah. Um This is what Freud called the narcissism of small differences because mm. we actually hate people who are very similar totally. to us yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> rather than people who are very different from us. Mm. Uh, and that's a very key thing to realize about ourselves when we hate something that's usually something that's very close to us. Um, wow.
1: but it, that's why Christmas dinners can be so.
0: Oh, yeah, so difficult, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And uh, you're, you're divided in the smallest of things, mm. whereas you can have someone, a friend, who you don't agree with anything, but you don't fight. It's yeah. interesting. But in Northern Ireland, the conflict got so bad, and the splitting was so bad, each side saw themselves as the utter enemy and evil, mm. and each side could find reasons to justify that narrative. So what what broke? Uh, And interestingly, so in 1998, there was the Good Friday Agreement, it was called, because it was signed on Good Friday. And uh, basically every side, the British government, uh, the Irish government, the, the loyalist paramilitaries, the nationalist paramilitaries, basically all realized that this splitting was just destroying everybody's lives. Everybody was getting damaged by it. Everyone was being destroyed by it. And that basically we were trying to win by absolutely destroying the other and it wasn't working. And so everybody said, right, we're going to have to sit at the table and we're going to have to talk. And so we went from basically war, which is the inability to have conflict, war where you basically want to destroy the other into conflict where you sit down and you actually fight Mm -hmm. back and forth and listen to the other. Once you're able to do that, novelty can arise. And what I mean by novelty is a way forward that you could not have imagined in advance. Mm. This is different from progressivism. This can be called apocalypticism because apocalypticism means the incoming of something you could never imagine. So in progressivism, people are imagining that they know what the future holds, what the answer is. Mm. So if, I, if I'm if i a progressive and I know that I, I know I'm on the right side of history and I know then that you're on the wrong side of history... I can love you, but only in a patronizing way, right? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately you have to come to see my opinion because I'm right. In apocalypticism, you go, we don't know what the future looks like. I don't know. I'm going to enter into a conflictual, difficult uh, form of communication with you and something will arise that will hopefully move us forward. But I don't know what that's going to look like. And so that's the problem with scapegoating is it doesn't allow for conflict of that nature, which doesn't allow for novelty. And without novelty, there can't be change. So in Northern Ireland, the novelty erupted and we literally find a way to, we have the most successful peace process in the modern world. We find a way to all move forward and it's the most bizarre kind of like a thing that happened we disbanded the whole police force we uh we now have a special relationship with ireland uh we kind of have a we don't have a border but we do all of these compromises were made and we're still living in the aftermath of the good friday agreement and it's and it's held it's held What, one of the things that a fascist ideology has that actually brings us closer to home is it's all about organic oneness, unity, wholeness, cleanliness. So if you read Mein Kampf, Hitler is constantly talking about viruses and dirt and invasion and penetration, like a sexual imagery. It's, it's all of this kind of like there is a pure, there is a pure organic society. And something is disrupting it and disturbing it, mm. and it's actually the more we give ourselves to a type of purity culture where we think we are the pure and the good, and we're we're imagining this pure society, the more we need a scapegoat, we'll look around for someone for some community that's disrupting it and uh, so there's something about a type of secular purity culture that that leads to a lot of the problems that we're we're seeing. Hmm. We we gotta get more comfortable with being dirty. I can see by looking at you that you're relatively comfortable with dirty <laughs> So
1: that's not a problem for you. <laughs> I am looking particularly homeless today. <laughs> I guess what I'm, I'm just wanting to mm. make a distinction between yep. equalizing scapegoating as just a principle and saying that all things are equal. It, it feels a little unfair when you talk about it from certain lenses, as far as it's different to tell the Nazi you're scapegoating Jews than it is to tell a Jew that's under the oppression of a Nazi, mm-hmm. you think Nazis are the problem. Yeah.
0: Yes. You know, that's yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. a different <laughs> impact. Yeah. We well, let's parse that out a little yeah. bit. That's a good, good thing to do. The first thing to say, interestingly is, um, scapegoating mechanism can operate even when it has a legitimate enemy. So here's the funny thing. So Lacan, the psychoanalyst, he said that even if your partner is cheating on you, your jealousy might still be pathological. So in other words, if, if you are pathologically jealous that your partner is cheating on you and then you find out you're right, you go, oh, I was right. But actually the jealousy can still be a pathology. It's just it hides now behind empirical reality. So sometimes what we do is we look for a legitimate enemy who kind of is bad, is causing problems. Yeah. And uh, then we can feel like we can feel justified in our hatred. The, the, the problem with that isn't moral. The problem with that, it's, it's more complicated. It's that we start to need the enemy. Mm. Right? I think I talked about this once before on your podcast, but how a hypochondriac, they hate their disease. But of course they don't. We all know because like, a hypochondriac is always thinking, do I have cancer or do I have heart disease or do I have this? They're constantly kind of like wanting it. They don't want it, but they're, they're obsessed with it. So if they happen to find out mm. that they do have cancer, so I, say I'm a hypochondriac, I think I have cancer and you are not a hypochondriac, right? And say we both find out that we have cancer, right? Because I am libidinally invested in the cancer, I am less likely to do things to get rid of it. I actually need it. It holds me together. Mm. It holds my anxiety together. Whereas you are not libidinally invested in your cancer, so you're more likely to do things that might be more effective in getting rid of it. Mm. So what I'm parsing out there is it sounds weird at first, but sometimes we love our enemies like like a hypochondriac loves their yeah. disease. We actually need our enemy. And 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 when we need our enemy, we're invested in actually. Yeah, you know, we do unconsciously. We do want to get rid of them. Like unconsciously, we kind of they 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 get us up in the morning. They make it exciting for our lives, and therefore we'll be less effective at actually uh, challenging.
1: Yeah, them. it actually can strengthen what they do.
0: Exactly. Oh, absolutely. One oh, hundred percent strengthens oh, it. Yeah. Trump.
1: Yeah. Like, let's not let's be honest. Would his base love him as much? If the left didn't hate him yeah. so much. Like part of what they love about him is how much the left hates oh, him. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I was amazed whenever
0: I saw, I saw some Democrats with a sign, I think I've talked about it's before, but it said, love Trump's hate. And uh, they were holding up, I think, around 2016. And I thought this is fascinating from a Freudian perspective, because, of course, the surface meaning is love is better than hate and Trump hates. But, of course, this, the other meaning is we love Trump's hate right and of course you could see how much energy some people were getting out of the hatred of the other and that is when you start (laughs) to get libidinally invested in one's enemy and then unconsciously one needs one's enemy yeah so that's when it's a scapegoat it's not a scapegoat whenever you literally just go something bad is occurring that needs to be sorted out but you're not so caught up that you are unable to think rationally, you're not so caught up in it that you actually are unconsciously uh, rooting for it. So mm. w- once you once you basically disengage from the scapegoat mechanism, you become more effective as as a as a force for good.
1: Mm. Yeah, just your. I mean, bringing it back to the personal level, if you're caught in the, unconsciously in a, in a scapegoat mechanism, where if any of any level of where those people are the problem. Mm. Now you're unconscious about what's happening in you and what's some of the actual causes of your misery, and and you're caught, you're owned by that other person. Now, like you're dependent on some external factor for your own well-being, your own peaceful yeah. state of being. So you're trapped, like you you're kind of owned by this person or this group of people in a weird way. And now you're not free.
0: We see this all the time. Like you see individuals uh, who always end up going out with people who hurt them or betray them. And if you know, you might be unlucky and you go out with someone and they do that. But the, but you will meet people, encounter people who they don't consciously know they're doing it, but they actually seek that out. They are kind of engaged in this process of looking for that kind of external enemy because there's something about that relationship that they're getting something out of it even though it's deeply painful to them even though it's causing deep suffering there's something uh, what's called a repetition disorder a repetition compulsion where you're repeatedly kind of looking for some unhealthy behavior
1: one of the most important lessons I feel like I've ever learned <laughs> in my life is, is that when I'm being affected, when that, when I'm being emotionally affected by something that's always about me. Mm. Yeah. Always. 100% of the time. They're like, I can't, I think it always seems like it's about that thing. Yeah. Like, well, they did that offensive thing, but if I'm offended, it's because something in me, is unresolved. And so like this scapegoating, this making them the problem, it's not to say that nobody does anything that's problematic. Yeah. Yeah. It's not to say that obviously there's a lot of people doing really horrible things, but my experience of that, my emotional response to that only comes from within me. And, And you
0: can disarm a lot of evil in the world. By disarming the own evil within yourself, yeah, now it's not complete. Maybe that's the
1: only evil you can disarm.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and it's funny because at a, at a very macro level, we're all part of society, so we're all part of economic systems and political mm-hmm. systems, and so we can't really find a purity and say we're not connected. In terms of, you know, what I wear, in terms of what I drive, what I drink, the conversations I have, we're so immersed in a in a culture together that it's actually very hard for us to say, "Oh, I am separate from the various contradictions and deadlocks and violence and problems that are within society." Mm-hmm. We're kind of caught up. Yeah. And so the question is then, how do I begin to work through that within myself? I'll give you an example of something actually we did in Belfast called the Evangelism Project, which was a, an attempt to disarm the scapegoating mechanism in ourselves, but also that helped do that for other people. And so the Evangelism Project was where we would go to a community to be evangelized. So we would go to, either, to, to some group that had views that were very different from our own, whether religious or political or cultural. And we would sit and we would listen to them for a bit. And then we would ask questions. But the evangelism of the evangelism project wasn't that. It wasn't that we would go to, say, the Islamic society and listen to what they had to say and then maybe convert to Islam. Uh, that's very unlikely for anyone to convert to anything in one sitting. And if they do, there's probably an issue, you know. The the evangelism happened when we said, what do we look like to you? Mm-hmm. Um, so say the small group, say of Christians go, what does the Christian community look like to you? And then when you see yourself through the other's eyes, you begin to change. You begin to see yourself. You begin to see the, the blind spots in your own life. So in a, in a similar way, like say, say I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat and we go into a debate. It's highly unlikely that I'm going to convince you to be a Republican. Mm-hmm. And it's highly unlikely that you're going to convince me to become a Democrat. Mm-hmm. But that's what a debate usually is. You're in fighting for yeah. your position. I'm fighting for my position. With the Evangelism Project, the idea is different, is that I come to you and I say, right, listen, you're you're a Democrat, right? I can't understand it, right? It's like, yeah, I, I don't know why you don't see that 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 position just doesn't hold, you know, you're just, it's just, you're too fragile. You don't, you know, you're not seeing the world as it really is. You're not like taking real political decisions. You want to have these impossible things of, you know, these political views that sound great on paper, but actually if they ever happened would potentially undermine the whole of society, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, whatever I'm saying. Right. But I'm going like, but I must be missing something because you seem like a reasonable person. So tell me what do I look like to you? And then I listen to how you see me and I'm not trying to become a Democrat. You're not trying to make me into a Democrat. I'm just seeing how I look through your eyes. And if I'm open to that, I suddenly start to go, oh yeah, I can see now that there's maybe parts of my position that are cold and difficult and wrong and vice versa. Then you say, well, what what do I look like to you? You're not going to convince me to become a Republican, but, but you might help me see why You wouldn't join this side. And then basically what we do is you help me become a better Republican and I help you become a better Democrat. Mm. But over time, the very way we understand those terms begins to change. Mm. So that's the kind of dialogue that can disarm Mm -hmm. the scapegoating mechanism or the splitting mechanism
1: uh, Mm. that we're talking about. Yeah, that's good. How do we come to recognize it? Because we were t- as we were talking at lunch, like just seeing it is often the big, ba- yeah. the biggest part of the battle. Like recognizing that mechanism at play in me, yes, because it really does. The, the whole mechanism is built on unconsciousness. It is built on really believing that they're the problem, yeah. and that this has nothing to do with me, yeah, and that if we solve that external issue, everything will be fine. Yeah. So I mean, how how do yeah. we even begin to recognize?
0: Well, this is where, and this is what I love about, yeah, this idea of the good news, right? There's this notion where like people do uh, work where they go to the prison population or they go to the homeless, you know, they say it's good news for Christians, maybe missionaries. I kind of like this, but I want to turn it on its head a little mm. bit because you mentioned earlier, we didn't go into it, but you're saying, well, what about things like racism or homelessness or prison population, whatever? Well, these are, these are issues. You're going like, well, these are issues. If there's racism in a society, we have to name it. Well, in this kind of approach, you have to say something quite difficult, which is the crime and racism and sex, many of these problems, they're not the problem. They're the solution to mm-hmm. a problem. Mm-hmm. Just like alcoholism is not a problem. It's the solution to a problem. And if you're working with someone who's an alcoholic and you don't work out what the alcohol is the solution to. If you think you can just get rid of the alcoholism yeah. through pure sheer will, it'll come up in a different way. It'll be like whack-a-mole, right? Mm, you yeah. get rid of one and it comes back somewhere else in CrossFit or something terrible, right? <laughs> so the idea is that if you think that homelessness is the problem and that we can just get rid of it, we're not realizing that, no, it's a solution to a problem that exists within society. And if we don't look at what that is, then yeah, we can give, blankets to homeless people, but we'll never solve the issue. So when we go to the poor or the homeless, it's not that we are good news to them, they're good news to us, because they are the truth that we cannot see as a society. The unconscious truth that we are not embracing, there's something about how we are living that's generating crime and unemployment and discontent and anxiety. And Uh, generating all sorts of weird symptoms. And those weird symptoms are everything from the obvious ones of racism and stuff like that to, to a lot of new age stuff to a lot of drug stuff to a lot of homelessness. There's all sorts of issues, religion, (laughs) you know, all sorts of things. (laughs) So whenever you're, you're saying about, yeah, how do we become aware? A part of it is, is yet changing our way of looking at things slightly and going, Okay, the thing that I think I can cut out of society like a cancer, if I just get rid of them, that will be what if they are the solution to a problem? As in that group of people, they express as a symptom. They're a symptom of some deeper problem that I am participating in. Mm -hmm. And suddenly now I'm having to do Mm self-reflection. What is it about my life? And my part in society that mm. is generating the problems that I am basically standing against. So weirdly, what you're standing against, you suddenly start to go, "Oh, oh, that might exist because of me."
1: Mm.
0: And that's, that's, a, that's a really difficult thing to you know to uh, face. Yeah, that's why at the very beginning we started off with that notion that whenever I have a symptom. I just want to take a drug to get rid of it. I don't want to start asking the difficult questions of, you know, what is it, what is it about me that that symptom is, uh, what truth is that symptom speaking?
1: So when you go back to purity culture, even somebody who's been wounded and repressed by purity culture, the easier thing is to be like, now I'm an ex whatever, ex evangelical purity culture hater. Yeah. And screw those people. Yeah. And... How does that approach limit my ability to actually heal to actually move God. forward? It's so.
0: So I mean, the, a lot of my work is is uh, revolves around this because a lot of us will convert from one position to another, mm-hmm. but we don't convert the way that we engage with the position. So we the, the scapegoat mm-hmm. mechanism is not um uh taken apart it's not yeah. de-weaponized uh it's just put into something else so at the level of what you believe everything changes yeah. but at the level of how you believe it everything <sighs> remains the same yeah Right. Yeah. and uh, so i see people moving you know people might move from religion to drugs to sex you know communities to political communities to yeah. ideological communities but you look and you go oh they're still looking for certainty and satisfaction. They're still looking for, I have the answer and I'm mm. right. And the past me is wrong and the other is wrong. Mm. And the real challenge is how do we not necessarily change what you believe? That's neither here nor there. How do we change the how of our belief? As Soren Kierkegaard talked about, he says, we're always changing what we believe, but the question is changing, you know, the, the process of changing how we believe it so that we basically can dismantle this type of uh, otherness thinking.
1: Yeah. When you start recognizing this, when you start recognizing that scapegoating mechanism, it can be hard and embarrassing. It can be, you know, I've noticed there's been a few times in the last few years where, for me, it's a good cue if I can feel myself getting activated, like emotionally activated yeah. in maybe ways that isn't totally uh, in ways that I would normally react, yeah. you know? So something kind of sets me off a little bit more. It's a great opportunity. And those like, there's just, just noticing, oh, there's more emotion than normal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What's going on What's in going me? On. Yeah. And what is this related to in me rather than just looking outside? The the natural easy thing is to look outside. What is the, yeah, screw them. Look at that. Yes. But as soon as that emotional activation starts happening to go, oh, there's some sort of insecurity in me. There's some sort of fear in me. There's some sort of hang up or attachment in me that's allowing this external circumstance to kind of take control. Yes. And very often there's probably going to be some sort of scapegoating Mechanism, yeah. some sort of like, oh, these people or that person is making me not happy. Is yeah. making me stressed. Is making me whatever the thing is. Rather yeah. than looking, at, it's actually my attachment to how that person is being that is making me stressed. <laughs> that is a, making yeah. me unhappy. Yeah. And and there's nothing wrong
0: with this. This is fine. Yeah. like defense mechanisms are there for a reason. Is that they're there to protect us from like a overabundance of emotion so you break up with somebody and you hate them and think they are all bad and evil and wrong that's kind of pretty natural the issue is simply that if you stay there it'll eventually make you bitter and you won't be able to move on and maybe have a healthier relationship and so this isn't even a question of whether it's right or wrong to feel these things it's simply a question of if we're not able to move beyond them then it just ends up damaging us all. And as as I mentioned earlier, then novelty can't happen. So novelty in the situation of a person breaking up with somebody is the novelty is someone new, some new type of relationship, some new way forward that you couldn't have imagined. Mm. But that can only really happen. And and by the way, there's no guarantee it will happen. But it, it can only really happen when you do the hard work of asking about your emotions and why you're feeling the way you're feeling and are able to kind of take a breath. And that can be very helpful, but it's not just helpful for you. It's also then helpful for the people around you. And so there's a, there's a guy called Wilfred Bion, a very famous psychoan- psychoanalyst. And he was working with an organization and someone asked him, what, what do you think about the uh, kind of the environment of this organization? And he said, The situation is not good for thinking Mm. Uh, in other words he was saying that like you're asking me to to think about where this organization is but my goodness the conditions are so bad that we can't even think right we're all at each other's throats Mm so you know the first challenge a little
1: little familiar (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) yeah and so the first challenge is oh my goodness how do we create the conditions for thought Mm -hmm. how do we create the conditions for real conflict You know, Mm. really sitting down and having a good old fight, not uh, to the extent where it becomes war and I will just not listen to you. I just want to, I just want to get rid of you.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. War is just what we do all the time writ large, right? Yeah. Yeah. We do that in small ways all the time. That's it.
0: And and there was a big moral thing back, I remember in Northern Arab times, because whenever people were actually murdered. And there was a lot of death and destruction and torture during the 30 years of war. And so a lot of people said, well, it's not, you know, what about the morality of sitting down with your enemy, right? Should you sit down with these people? And th- that's why I almost want to take the morality out of it, because actually m- morally you could say, no, I don't want to sit down with someone who is like that or who is responsible for murder. Mm. But uh, in Northern Ireland, it was like all sides went, no, 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 it, we're all going to it, the whole thing's going to fall apart. The whole, the whole of society is collapsing. And so it's basically not a question of morality so much as, as I said, novelty. Mm. It's, a, it's a situation of going, we all sit down, try to create the conditions where we can think and argue in the hope that an apocalyptic event will happen, i.e. we'll find a way to move forward, and that will stop us from descending into oblivion. Mm. Um, and that's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. And you can't tell someone to do it, but, but a society and really just a society gets to a point where the hurt is so painful for so many people that sometimes you kind of go, okay, this isn't working. And at that point, a uh, change can happen, mm. but it, it's a, it's a dangerous thing you don't, you know, a society can destroy itself before it gets there. The question is then how do we, how do we model a way to communicate?
1: Hmm. any ideas on that <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well here's a funny thing so i do a thing called atheism for lent mm-hmm. the, the, you, you know about it's it's funny because when i started it this pastor said to me oh you'll never get 10 theists who'll want to do that i have like thousands now who do it and atheism for lent is this interesting thing where if over lent for 40 days you get various atheistic critiques but we read them not to critique them, but to let them critique us. And actually, the point is to show that atheism and theism, you think they're, they're enemies. You think you know, theology has nothing to do with atheism, but it's, uh, they're actually completely intertwined. Yeah, they There's need been, each other. They, what's exactly. that? They need each other. They need each other. And, and they need each other. They dance with each other. Sometimes they argue with each other. Sometimes they're completely interconnected with each other. And it's actually this very rich dance and that there is a theological atheism. So doing that course is a way in terms of the religious world for atheists to see a theological dimension to what they're doing Mm. and appreciate that, and for people who are theists to see an atheistic dimension of what they're doing and to appreciate that. And um, at the end of the 40 days, those seemingly impenetrable boundaries between sacred and secular, theist and atheist, are now porous. Mm. So need to have equivalent things like that, potentially.
1: Yeah, I think when you start confronting this and seeing it, recognizing it in yourself, and your community, and your ways of being in the world, it seems like just you being aware of it would tend to lead you towards more inclusion, more harmony, more peace. Cause like, what else could it be when you see the mechanism by which you're being torn apart from your neighbor is yeah. in you? Yes. And you just see it, it kind of loses some of its power and then a more natural connection and healing has room to it's it's,
0: Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird form of like peaceful lack of peace. Uh, a contented discontent. (laughs) um, There's a, the difference, one of the differences between counseling and psychoanalysis is that often in counseling, what happens is someone comes to a therapist of some kind and they have a contradiction in them. They have some sort of conflict and that's damaging them in some way. Often in counseling, the idea is to get rid of the conflict, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of somehow you begin to dissipate it, you talk about it, your anger with your partner or whatever it is. And as you talk about it, you're able to, you know, find greater peace. Now, the slight difference in psychoanalysis is actually the the goal is not to get rid of the contradiction, but is rather to deepen it. And deepen it and deepen it to such a extent that it uh, until you're able to live with it, mm. until you're able to make peace with the lack of peace. So you may go in because you're angry with your boss. But as you talk, you realize, no, I'm really angry with my partner. Yeah. But then as you talk more, you go, well, actually, I'm really angry with my parents, you know, my brother or sister. And then you find that you're dealing with the anger of existence, Mm -hmm. right? That existence is difficult. (laughs) And eventually you get to this point where you go, oh yeah, life is difficult and I have to find a way to navigate that. And Hegel calls this absolute knowledge actually in philosophy, but it's the cure in psychoanalysis is partly the ability to come to terms with your own contradictions your own deadlocks your own frustrations your own impurity your own dirtiness and not let someone else carry it not have to find someone else to take it on board and when you get to that point you find that you are individually a healthier person but that actually your networks become healthier Mm. because the way you interact with your networks is different Mm. that's for me the challenge and that's why i'm not a progressive or anything is because I'm not trying to move towards some sort of existence without contradiction, Mm -hmm. some sort of organic kind of utopia. What I'm interested in is this more analytic approach, which is the various contradictions of society, that we address them. And as we address them, we find that there's deeper contradictions. So we find that what we initially thought was about crime, right? These criminals, these people who are out uh, robbing houses or whatever and we find out oh no that criminal activity is something to do with unemployment wealth disparity et etc cetera, etc cetera. so suddenly now you're a deeper level you're not like judge dread just going there's a criminal i'm going to you know, lock them away you're now going oh the criminals the criminals that are operating will always be a few criminals but systemic crime is connected to all sorts of other things And then we deepen that contradiction and we get to the point where we can accept that there's a certain contradiction as part of life. And as you accept that, the idea is that society will become healthier, that basically most of the problems we see today are frenetic attempt to get rid of contradiction, Mm -hmm. to turn it into opposition, Mm -hmm. to take contradiction and make it opposition, i.e. they're the problem, get rid of them and everything will be great. And if we can avoid that oppositional thinking and we can see that we're scapegoating if we can have enough communities in a country where hundreds of people are living like that that can have a really positive effect on the society at large so my my project is to try to help create communities where literally hundreds or thousands of people are being libidinally disattached from the scapegoat mechanism Mm. so that they can kind of basically escape from this frenetic pursuit of like a a wholeness and a completeness Mm -hmm. embrace their own contradictions and that can actually have massive change in political and economic level
1: i think i've heard you say salvation from salvation Uh, yes absolutely yeah something to that extent
0: that's it that's the ultimate salvation salvation from the need to be saved it's a tough one we're always looking to be you know to find the next thing that that works yeah. Uh, what does it look like to have a community where you embrace the not working? Uh, a way that I sometimes said, I think I got it from, I think Slavoj Shizek might have said it, is it's great to be free to pursue what will make you happy. But it's also good to have communities where you're freed from the pursuit of what will make you happy. Hmm. Which means you're freed from the frenetic pursuit of trying to get something that works. Yeah. Because when it doesn't work, you're always looking for someone to blame.
1: Wow it's good stuff man that was fun thank you yeah thank you well we hope we see you this Sunday at the Sunday thing which if you don't know what that is you can go to theliturgist.com click on join us we have this weekly meetup with the liturgist community online we use zoom and we talk about the week's episode and we meditate together it's a great time uh, check that out, theliturgist.com, and just click the join us button. This episode was hosted by me, Michael Gunger. Thanks to Pete Rollins for being our guest. Thanks to Tages Lairheiden for editing this episode. Thanks to the patrons, as always, for making what we do possible. All the love to all of you. Thanks for listening, everybody.